Since the identification of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, the left and paternalist factions of the right at home and abroad have returned to their favorite policy packages, harsh lockdowns and tyrannical mandates. And while the American president has ruled out lockdowns for now, his party comrade Bill de Blasio, who remains mayor of New York until the new year, instituted the most severe vaccination passport regime this side of the Atlantic. No one over the age of five will be permitted to engage in almost any public activity without showing their papers in the so-called greatest city in the world, and a harsher diktat than President Biden's enjoined federal private worker vaccination mandate will take effect before the end of the month. Joining me to discuss de Blasio's order is Joel Zinberg, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, director of Paragon Health Institute's Public Health and American Wellbeing Initiative, and associate clinical professor of surgery at the ICANN Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Uh, Joel, before we begin, if you could tell our listeners about your background. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm a physician, practice surgery uh, in New York City at Mount Sinai for about 30 years. I also have a law background. Uh, I have a JD degree. I taught for about 10 years at the Columbia University School of Law, where I created courses dealing with uh, medical and legal issues involving organ transplantation and other policy issues. Uh, in the past, I worked at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and uh, more recently, I spent two years as a senior economist and general counsel at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. That would be from 2017 through 2019. So so on to this, this order by uh, outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, can you give us like what it actually says, what it is, uh, who it applies to, who has to enforce it, that sort of thing? Well, it really has two sort of major components. One, uh, and probably the one that's gotten the most attention, has been his mandate for the approximately 184,000 private businesses in the city, uh, and it requires them to ensure that their employees have at least one vaccine dose uh, by. December 27th. And this is vaccinated uh, or fired. This isn't there isn't a testing out like there is. Correct. Correct. There's no opportunity to test out. There's also uh, very, you know, it's unclear. He haven't provided all the details, but it looks like any kind of exemptions are going to be extremely limited. It doesn't appear that they're going to have any sort of exemption for people who can document natural immunity because they've had COVID in the past and recovered. Uh, and the second component is really what you described before, this uh, notion that people sort of uh, tightening up on the requirements that people demonstrate vaccination before they enter uh, various public places and going down as low as five-year-olds. And, and my understanding as a layman of the, the actual scientific debate over approving the vaccine for kids, the COVID vaccine for kids, was that they were the, the people who actually, you know, judged the who actually judged the worthiness or the appropriateness of the of the for, for the kids. It's still an emergency youth authorization, right? That's correct. The people who so the FDA officials, the CDC officials who. Uh, made the yes, you should emergency use authorize this is that they were very hesitant to make this mandatory or that it or they were not necessarily 
supportive of making it mandatory. Is that is that your understanding? Well, look, the folks who go through that process are not in the business of what deciding whether it's mandatory or not for any age. They're really just uh, they're making recommendations. There are two there are two processes. There's the FDA and the CDC, uh, and the FDA just makes a determination whether they think it's safe and effective for the particular indication. And here it would be, you know, for disease prevention uh, in a particular age group. And then the CDC makes recommendations on vaccinations uh, where they think it's appropriate. And, and again, they can make considerations of the age group. Neither of those uh, bodies makes consider uh, makes recommendations on making it mandatory in, in particular. The, the mandatoriness or not mandatoriness is something that's generally made at the local level, state and local government levels. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's not a consideration. So uh, I think they had other concerns with the uh, lower age groups uh, because they're it's very clear that COVID is not a severe disease for young people. Uh, if the, the number of fatalities in the under 18 age group is, is you know, it's just a few hundred. And when you consider the tens of millions of people who fall into that age and group, that, it's and pretty, just, just pretty, pretty small. I mean, and when considering uh, the, the sort of level of background risk that it poses to children of this age that that a couple hundred is that how does that compare to a average flu year and how much does that compare to a bad flu year well look flu is uh in general a more uh, uh compelling risk for younger people than COVID has proven to be particularly in bad flu years so you you would get you know that many fatalities in a bad a single bad flu year uh, now <coughs> excuse me that doesn't mean that this is not an unimportant you know problem obviously any mm -hmm. death particularly in a, of a child is is really you know devastating uh, and there are other considerations you know covid aside you know death is not the only thing uh people who seem to have other complications from the disease. There's a, a, a syndrome that involves uh, long-term inflammation uh, that, that it can be, which thankfully most kids recover from, uh, mm -hmm. but it still takes them, you know, it's it quite a, a bad uh, syndrome. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's another reason you don't want these kids getting uh, COVID in the first place. And then of course, there's the consideration of kids could be sort of transmitters of COVID to older people who are in, in a more vulnerable category. So what's the justification for, again, this vaccine passport regime? Because what, what at least as a layman, what I see is regions, populations get COVID, whether no matter what they do. That it doesn't matter how hard you lock down. It doesn't matter whether you don't lock down at all. It doesn't matter whether you protect the elderly or don't protect the elderly. It doesn't matter whether you have lots of vaccinations. I mean, Florida had a pretty high vaccination rate going into Delta, and they got hit harder than anywhere since the first wave. Um, you know, yet we are 
really making some what I see as substantial impingements on personal liberty here. Well, look, it's been very clear, and there's now a lot of uh, academic data on this, that uh, the lockdowns don't do very much. Uh, and, and the primary reason they don't do very much is that people react and take actions on their own. Uh, this goes for individuals. It goes for private businesses. Uh, so, you know, m- many of the forecasters early on in, in this pandemic made all kinds of wild predictions of millions of deaths after just a few months of pandemic. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at fine print in those studies, you see that they acknowledge that they're not accounting for people's actions, that they don't account for the fact that when people hear there's a communicable disease circulating, they take action. They start to avoid public places. They stay in more often. Uh, they uh, avoid uh, social gatherings, things like that. Um, so the predictions were wrong to start with. And then the subsequent analyses of, of uh, lockdowns, again, ignored this private inf- impact. So when you actually had studies that look, tried to tease out which was the more important factor, the private actions or the um, public, the government mandated lockdowns, it found that the private actions were far more important and they, generally speaking, started before the government did anything. So people began to alter their behavior. And this these, people these people were, notice people notice that lots of people are getting sick and some of them are doing very badly. So correct. If, they, 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 I, they I'm going to I'm going to I have a, I'm feeling the I'm feeling the onset of a cold. I'm going to stay home rather than take two day quill and go in go into my office. Right. Or, or I know that I've noticed that there's the, you know, I've heard all this stuff about this potentially deadly new disease. I'm going to stay home. And businesses uh, took action on their own. You know, there's this notion that you need to uh, lock down hospitals. You need to tell them to stop doing elective surgeries. You need to tell them what to do. You know, hospitals are run by some pretty smart people, including, you know, like my hospital in New York, Mount Sinai. They, you know, all of these hospitals began to limit elective procedures. Uh, They began to try to expand capacity. They reallocated. You guys, you guys, you guys know how many beds you have much faster than the state of New York or the city of New York or certainly the federal government know. That's that's right. (laughs) That's correct. And they also know, for example, oh, well, we have uh, 20 recovery room beds. We can reallocate those to ICU, uh, COVID ICU beds. Uh, and we know we have this empty space over here. We can put another 10 beds over there. We know we have people who, who anesthesiologists who, are, you know, can function as critical care doctors because we'll take them out of the operating room and make them, uh, you know, run these new ICUs. So this is the the type of thing where uh, it was, you know, the, the private enterprises knew better and they were much more nimble than the federal government. Or even in many cases, even even the state governments. I was going to say, we even see this with the vaccine uptake. I mean, pretty my understanding is that a first dose is nationwide. It's something like 75 to 80 percent uptake, which is pretty good for any vaccine, much less one that was invented. Just about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, no, the vaccine's uptake is good. And and the, the. what you also notice, the, the waves of vaccine uptake 
that follow the waves of infections. So when infections are rising or when there seems to be a new variant, suddenly more people decide that, gee, I'm going to get vaccinated now. So it's again, it's that these private responses are far more powerful and more important uh, than the government responses, and, and they're more efficacious. I mean, but with that, with that understanding, I mean, is this just something that people don't know? Because it look, I mean, it looks like in a place like New York, in a place like Washington, D.C., in a place like California, basically the, the tyrant's leader can go out and do whatever he wants and nobody even raises objection. Uh, even though, as you said, it's the, you know, the personal action, the private action, the uh, the action of firms and individuals that's making more of a difference more quickly to the extent a difference can be made. Who's been who's benefiting from a vaccine passport regime? Like, Look, what, what's what what does what who stands to gain? Well, if there's a natural inclination uh, on the part of our uh, public figures to be seen as doing something, doing anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you have people like Mayor de Blasio in New York have the conceit that they are very important. And unless they and the government order something, nothing's going to happen. But of course, we know that that's, that's not the case. But particularly someone like Mayor de Blasio, who has now, thankfully, will be leaving uh, office on the stroke of midnight of December 31st, uh, you know, he's also announced that he's running for governor of New York State. You know, this is a way for him to appear like a strong leader, someone who's tackling the impending doom head on. And, and if you listen to the language he used in making his announcement, it's no mystery. He said he's going to this is a bold first in the nation measure. He's he's going to issue a preemptive strike against this potential surge. Uh, meanwhile, all the while ignoring multiple facts that didn't indicate that no surge is imminent, uh, and, and also ignoring the fact that uh, particularly at the time he made this pronouncement, very little was known about this new Omicron variant. Uh, no one knew if it was going to be more transmissible. No one knew if it was going to be more or less virulent. No, no one knew uh, whether the vaccines would be effective uh, against it. And and if if I can just interject briefly, to, to your knowledge, based on what we know today, which is admittedly whatever, a week and a half after it was formally identified. Uh, is it still, is there, are there, is there still reason to believe that Omicron is perhaps more transmissible, but less virulent? It, that is not definite as yet. However, the preliminary information that's coming out of South Africa uh, appears to be that Omicron may be more transmissible, but the disease it causes is basically mild. Now, again, this has to be confirmed, uh, and there are a number of uh, variables at play in South Africa that give you, you know, make you wait about making a, you know, final pronouncement. For example, mm -hmm. South Africa has a very young population. Um, most of the 
patients that they've uncovered thus far have been young and, and we've known for a very long time. Yeah, we, we've known we've known since Wuhan that that the elderly are the ones in trouble. That's right. We've known that the the elderly are the the ones who are most susceptible to severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I mean, I think to this date, many people don't realize that about 80% of COVID mortalities are in people 65 and older. Uh, so when you mentioned before the the idea of protecting the elderly. You know, the reality is that's something that was never really tried. You know, it was it was something that many people C- certainly opposed. certainly in certainly in New York State, where the former governor and uh, Andrew Cuomo ordered nursing homes to retake covid patients. Right. He almost went out of his way to expose the most vulnerable people to the disease. Uh, and then, of course, then acted to cover it up by falsifying the deaths in nursing homes. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I guess this brings us to the whole question of how what's this going to do to New York City? Uh, you've had some prominent people. I'm thinking of uh, New York Post writer Carol Markowitz, uh, Sarb Amari, who writes for, I believe, the American Conservative now. Um, you know, they they stuck it out through the first lockdown. They stuck it out. They stuck it out through <laughs> COVID itself, which hit New York, obviously hit New York first and hit New York very hard. Uh, They stuck it out through the lockdown. They stuck it out through the year of school closures. They stuck it out through uh, the initial round of vaccination passports. And now that they've expanded it to kids, they're walking. Uh, You know, people are mentioning that what are tourists going to do when they come to New York City and they're asked to show me your papers and I left my card back in Kansas. Uh, You know, where... Where's the city going to go from here? Because it looks like it may that this may be not all by itself, but combined with, you know, changes to criminal justice policy at the state level, changes to, uh, you know, the the social and economic policies of New York State. Are we looking at another 20 years of decline and decay, the the sort of the pre Giuliani era all over again? Well, there are lots of reasons to be concerned about that. I don't know that uh, the pandemic is the primary one, but in the shorter term, I think you really have to worry about the economic recovery of the city. You know, the, the, the city is just starting to return to normal. People are starting to go back to work. Yet unemployment is uh, the unemployment rate is still substantially higher, both in New York State and particularly in New York City than it is around the rest of the country. Uh, you know, we and, uh, you know, we're about twice as high. So we ought to be thinking about how do we get business going here? Uh, and in leisure and hospitality is a big industry in New York City. And people are just not going to want to come if if all of these restrictions keep the things that attract visitors to New York in the first place from happening. Uh, and, and, you know, th- and things like the the covid it's not a, they, there's no formal passport the way people talked about many months ago, but sh- being required to show proof of vaccination for a five year old, you know, particularly when the vaccine hasn't even really been available to, for five year olds until very recently, it is sort of absurd. I mean, you're 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 I mean, I'm op- thinking like like. When. And and this is for a vaccine that's only been around for a year. Like the the my understanding is that the measles vaccine, it took a decade or more 
before they started requiring it for school attendance. And at least until COVID, my understanding was that measles was the most contagious disease known to man. No, measles is still, it's actually substantially more uh, contagious than, than COVID. Uh, so yes, measles keeps that crown. Um, and, but, you know, people don't necessarily jump to new vaccines. And, and for example, it's considered a good year for influenza, the flu, when about 50% of the population gets vaccinated. So the fact that we have vaccinated so many people so rapidly is actually rather remarkable. Right. We, we, then, we, should, we should be celebrating that we have protected the vast majority of the public against severe disease and death and then get back yeah. to our lives. <laughs> Correct. And, and you ought to be willing to take into account that people who develop natural immunity, even if they haven't been vaccinated, also have pretty effective protection. The, you know, the CDC has been all over the map on this, but there are publications from them that sort of review the evidence and grudgingly acknowledge that natural immunity provides good protection as well. So when you consider the number of people who have been vaccinated, uh, and you also add in the probably well over 100 million people, maybe even closer to 200 million people, who have actually had COVID and recovered, we're really at a very good place in terms of immunity. Does that mean we're not going to have cycles where there are increases in infection? No, of course it doesn't mean that, particularly when you have a virus that's circulating freely, both in this country and throughout the world. So it has the opportunity to, to have mutations, it has the opportunity to have new variants. So you're going to get- Matt, Matt, Sh Matt, Matt Shapiro goes by political math on Twitter, pulled up the book written by the doctor who led the WHO campaign to eradicate smallpox. And I remember, you know, I, I remember, you know, he lit the, the, the smallpox eradicator listed like seven criteria of smallpox that made him believe that he could actually do it, that, that smallpox could actually be eradicated. And my under, and I believe zero or maybe one of them applied to COVID-19. Yeah. Well, look, smallpox didn't happen. Eradication did not happen overnight. It was a concerted effort that took decades to accomplish. Oh, I mean, the, the, the Jenner vaccine was invented in what, like 1800 and it wasn't eradicated until 1980? Right. Well, I mean, plus or minus a couple decades on either end. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a little more sophisticated. Our vaccination, our vaccines are a little more sophisticated than the, the Jenner uh, vaccine. But, you know, it, it, this goes back to what I was talking about before, smallpox, for example, is a disease that kills about a third of the people who are infected. And the survivors are often left with permanent scarring. That's a much greater motivator than something like COVID, where the you know, infection fatality rate is something like 0.2 to 0.4%. You know, so it, 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 you're talking about completely different types of, of diseases and particularly in younger groups. If, if you look at, you know, that's why some of this discussion of workplace mandates is is so disingenuous. You know, the people people in the prime age workforce, so say age 25 to 55, are at very low risk. So you have people at age 25 have an infection fatality rate of one one hundredth of a percent. And it rises up to about 0.4% uh, 
at age 55. So the folks in the workplace are not really the ones at tremendous risk. Now it goes rapidly up as people go. Yeah, it, it, it looks that. like a, it's like an exponential function. Right. And that's, that, that is why, you know, people from for a very long time have said, hey, let's concentrate on protecting those who are most vulnerable. Uh, and, and but so there's nothing particularly in most workplace settings. There's nothing particularly about the workplace that makes people more vulnerable. You know, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, people work in meatpacking, for example, work shoulder to shoulder. Uh, so they, they and they do it for hours on end. So obviously there that, that would be an increased risk. There are other settings where like uh, medical facilities where you're concerned uh, with protecting the workers from sick patients. And perhaps more importantly, you're concerned yeah, with protecting protect- patients from the from the medical staff. So those are situations you might consider a mandate. Uh, but for most workplace settings, that's just not a consideration. Well, I think that is a good place to break. Thank you again to Dr. Joel Zinberg for joining us. Uh, We will include a link to his piece at City Journal, All for Show, in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.